0: Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap
1: Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own
2: You are listening to the Quantumly podcast. This is episode one hundred and thirty-seven. Revisiting. Play it again, Seymour.
3: Oh boy. Uh, this this is not what it looks like. Uh, he was dead when I got here. Mm-hmm. Anybody besides you and him to corroborate that? I don't know. And you're going to miss the Dodger opener, Nick. I'm still in L.A. L.A.? Yeah, sure, and uh, Field is in Hollywood. It was 1953. The Dodgers were still in Brooklyn, and I was a private detective named Nick Allen. The dead man on the floor was my partner, Phil Grimsley. And if that wasn't enough to cause chills, there was the image in the mirror. Am I bogey? No. But the resemblance is amazing. That might be why Nick became a gumshoe. Um, what am I here to do? Find the killer, probably. Then I didn't do it. Uh, Nick didn't do it. Uh, Ziggy says it's four to one yeah. against. Your partner, Phil, was into CD divorce cases, so he was probably off by someone, a snapshot, in a compromising position. Al, don't ask me how I'm I know this, but any second, a bald detective with a cigar is gonna come walking through... That door and tell me that the bullet or that so Grimsley like took you, didn't come from my gun. Get out of here, Nick. Ballistic
2: sentence Grimsley stopped. Didn't match your gun. You,
3: you deja vu. I don't think so. Maybe leaping from one year to another had done more than Swiss cheese my brain because the feeling of deja vu had just struck again. Someone in publishing named Seymour was about to speak to me. My Nick! I knew them all. The older guy was Lionel, the building superintendent. The elevator operator was Chuck, and Seymour was the boy behind the newsstand. Had Allison taken? How bad could she take it? A body like that doesn't marry a guy like Phil for love. Any idea who killed him? Word on the street is he was fogged by a dropper called Clapper. A dropper called Clapper? Why would a dropper be after Phil? Oh, are you kidding? I bet Phil and Nick could put a dozen hard Harry's in the slammer. Any one of them could have paid a
1: dropper to fog him.
3: Someone was in my office someone dangerous
1: oh Nick it's so horrible when I found out the police thought you killed Phil I was so afraid they'd find out about us oh boy I mean it would be motive for you to kill Phil
3: wouldn't it I found Phil emptying a bottle with a hand shaker than a grass skirt on Waikiki he looked like a cat working on his ninth life ever since he heard a dropper named Clapper was looking for him it's not déjà vu. <laughs> I read this
4: book. Welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher T. Philippus. I'm Allison Pregler, and I'm Matt Dale. Quantum Leap, we're back to Quantum Leap, the <laughs> classic <laughs> <laughs> series. And joining da-da, us da-da, again da-da, is da-da, our friend Allison Pregler. We hey.
5: missed you so much. Yay. <laughs> Everybody, welcome um, Allison
0: back!
5: Welcome <laughs> back, guys. I miss this. Seems like uh, things were going swimmingly. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Everything's better now. Yes. So yeah, um, Allison, it's it's been a little while, uh, but you don't sound rusty at all. It's like you're a professional broadcaster or something, and you <laughs> just do this like second nature
5: oh thanks actually i was super worried i was like oh no i hope we get the flow going you know sometimes you have a long break and you're like oh, i gotta get back into it
6: we we were doing this for what like five years or so and it's been a five week break i think we're good i think we're, I think good. we're right.
5: <laughs> we got this we're pals yeah. we're chums we got this
4: it's just the chat with friends yes about quantum leap and um, probably, uh, it, it's it's weird, the the synergy that we have here. The last time uh, we had a show, it was for the finale of season one of the reboot, and now it's for the finale of season one of the classic series. So,
5: Oh, man, dueling episodes. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a little bit different for a finale uh, in 1989
6: versus oh, yeah, uh, 2023. Era, for sure. <laughs> yes. They weren't
5: thinking about season <laughs> finales the way we think about them now, for sure.
6: It's it's not really a season finale, is it? It just stops. There's just no (laughs) more quantum leap the next week for a few months.
5: It was a good one to end on, though. I mean, like there are some episodes of season one to be like. "Mm." I mean, you kind of want to think about what you're ending on if you're not certain you're going to be renewed or not. Yeah, I guess.
4: Yeah, I mean, maybe we should tell people what we're talking about today. Uh, (laughs) Let's do it it. It is play it again, Seymour. Which, uh yeah, it was an odd choice. I thought an odd choice. I got a lot. I got a lot of questions about this one, guys. So, um, All right. set in 1953. So, I think that's as far back as we leap so far in the original series.
5: This was uh pre-Sam's uh, birth too. It was yeah, like right. before August 8th. So, I think this was the one where they're like, "This is uh, conception counts." <laughs>
4: It's <laughs> <That's> why. <fine. laughs> I mean, I know that they they hadn't cemented the the lore yet, or Sam's birthday, mm-hmm. or anything. So, are we inadvertently uh, like saying this is a political statement after the fact?
6: I did oh. wonder about that, right? Because, um, <laughs> yeah, like we, we knew his birthday from the pilot. So, was this a political statement about when life begins, or was it just a screw up? And I did ask Deborah about this a couple of months back, and she said. I don't know. I think the writers were just looking at the year of Sam's birth and going with that. Um, I didn't point out to her that one of the writers of this episode was Donald, but that's what
5: Deborah said. He didn't always remember everything. I doubt it was meant to be anything or they would have said something about it, I think, if, if it was meant to be a message. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just they they didn't remember, and they were trying to think how far back can we go to try and get to the noir era, even though technically this is a little past when that would have been in in vogue, I think.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is like last gunfighter level ridiculous at times.
5: (laughs) 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 <laughs> so that's
4: one of my uh one of my main things. But yeah, it's great to be back talking about Quantum Leap with both of you like we've always done and for the next several weeks we're going to be doing the classic series, classic episodes and the novels just like we were doing before the new series premiered. So I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen uh classic Quantum Leap now in feels like forever. <laughs> so it's just nice to sit down and watch Quantum Leap again. I know I said the same thing on the Kamikaze Kid revisit, but uh yeah. Yeah, interesting episode though. Guys, let's start with some some first impressions. Allison, since you're back, hero of the hour. What are your <laughs> first impressions
5: of uh kamikaze kid? Uh you mean play it again Seymour? <laughs>
4: <laughs> see, maybe
5: we are rusty.
4: I'm gonna to leave about Kamik- it, like, Kamikaze Kid anyway. Yeah, oh, kamikaze, kamikaze kid. kid. Let's go back.
5: <laughs> I don't have my notes anymore for that one. Let's see. Um Yes, play it again Seymour. <laughs> Uh, Play It Against Seymour, I think, is a great episode. It's a really interesting one because I think it's probably the one that plays the most with genre. Um, I think it's a really great looking episode. You can feel like um, the budget here. It feels very cinematic. And so, uh, yeah, I really enjoy this one. Cool. How about you,
4: Matt?
6: Yeah, th- this is one of those ones that uh, has grown on me with age when I was a kid i I saw the film noir stuff which i'm just it's not a genre that interests me, and it just completely turned me off and as I've got older and just been able to appreciate that look this is this is forty five minutes of um a, a show aping that genre uh, it's yeah it is a lot of fun it plays with the genre it's enjoyable it's a nice strong end to the season
4: yeah i i agree i'm I, I have a mixed, um, mixed history with noir stuff. I've seen some movies that I've absolutely loved, um, like Double Indemnity, uh, was amazing, uh, film noir. Um, then I see other stuff like The Maltese Falcon and I'm kind of bored by it. I, I've also mm. tried to read that stuff. Like I have Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett novels because I love The Thin Man. So I've tried to read some of that stuff and it, I, it it always loses me. Like I find myself wandering. So it, it's not a genre that I particularly love, but I love everything visual about it. And um, I feel like this episode knocked it out of the park visually. It was just stunning. But the murder mystery stuff was kind of very noirish. People standing around talking about a murder mystery and who did it. I, I think Willie Garson was kind of the saving grace of this episode to bring in the levity. And uh, there was some really great Sam Al stuff here, too. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot to dig into with this.
5: Yeah, I think sometimes uh, when there's an episode of a show that plays heavily with a genre that you're not really into, you can appreciate it more once you are attached to the characters. So it's like, oh, I'm not really into noir stuff, but I'm interested in seeing what Sam and Al are doing Mm -hmm. in a noir episode. It's the same with, like, sports episodes. I'm not really big into sports episodes, but I enjoy it because I enjoy the characters – so, yeah, I think it's interesting. It's also this episode is another one that's kind of fitting quantum leap into a genre rather than how do we fit a genre into quantum leap kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It feels very early season stuff, but they're they're kind of finding a groove since it's the the end of the season,
4: yeah, yeah, but I mean, I feel like what they were trying to do once again like we we've discussed this with previous episodes in this first season, almost like proof of concept. See what we can do here see what we can do here and look and look how beautiful this looks we can do this very well and who cares if this really should have been set in 1937
5: yeah oh yeah the fact that the 50s was way too late to be doing this but it doesn't feel like as off as something like last gunfighter like it feels at least in the past so you can kind of forgive it for that but uh yeah i mean you can tell there was a lot of time and money put into this that they did not have the luxury of say in season five. <laughs> you wouldn't be seeing that in Blood Moon, you know. <laughs> and so I appreciate that. You see lots of like really cool shots, like when um when Sam's making out with Allison, and uh and then they get shot at, and he's running by the neon sign, and he's looking in the the reflection, and at this cut, like ah, it's just a just a nick or whatever he said.
3: <laughs> just a scratch.
5: Just kind of interesting looking shots. Yeah,
4: and I think that do you think Blood Moon would have done better with um a full forty piece orchestra playing Blue Moon? <laughs> Honestly, or?
5: no. And, I mean, okay, Blood Moon was always going to be the vampire episode, but if they had the money to do a a gothic hammer horror type thing, which I think was kind of the thought going into it, and time to do more cinematic shots and uh, maybe a few more takes of some things, I think they probably could have pulled it off. But you only have. Uh, as much as your time and budget allows you sometimes and I think that's part of what hurt that one because it was a rush job
6: I'd have missed that backdrop moon though
5: the backdrop moon the the giant (laughs) one at the end yeah well, I mean, there
4: was um some real different stuff here. It seems to me they were testing out different ways to sort of tell stories with Quantum yeah. Leap. I I was really um impressed by the leap in. Once again, before they had gotten so sort of routinized with the old boys and stuff, the way we get the date is that they slowly pan over to a newspaper. Yeah. And I don't know that we've ever seen that since. I I don't think we saw it before either, but um it just struck me as an interesting way to do it. To to cue the audience in, and yeah. um, Sam also seems to remember where he was last because he says, "Oh no, I'm in. I'm still in L.A. Right? Because he hears Dodgers. Kamikaze Kid was in L.A. Right?
5: Uh, it looked like maybe it. I don't remember yeah. where that yeah, one but- was. <laughs> it's all in yeah. L.A.
3: <laughs> <Right>.
5: <laughs> but yeah, he does seem to remember it. Um, I think this is the first time he leaps in with a dead body as well. Like he leaps in and there's a, a body in front of him. Which I don't feel like they play as seriously as they would later. I think he's kind of like, oh, man, <laughs> <laughs> this stinks. And then next scene you see him, he's just like, oh, sweet. I look like Humphrey <laughs> Bogart. I love <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who cares about that guy? <laughs> I did think it was kind of funny, like when he's exiting the office and he accidentally puts on the dead guy's hat and it's a little too small for him. Like, oh, this is his. <laughs> he's
4: got to chill.
6: Yeah. Sam's a little out of character throughout the whole episode. I mean, smoking and everything, he's just... He's, oh, he is. He's just getting right into character.
5: Yeah, with him, like, smoking and, like, picking up some of the, uh, the lingo of the time, uh, yeah. unintentionally. You laid a Ben
3: Franklin on the cocktail shaker at the Blue Island, and he opened up like a pencil pusher from Toledo on his third martini. I gave the bartender at the club $100, and he started talking like an accountant from Toledo who'd had one too many? That's what I said. Oh, God, I understood you.
5: I feel like this is, you could retroactively say a bit of residuals, Again, yeah, yeah. I don't really think they had that, that concept down yet. I think he was just playing the part, but, mm. I mean, it fits in if you just say that's what it is. Yeah yeah i mean i i
4: don't see sam you know voluntarily lighting a cigarette so i thought he was being magnifuzled with nick quite a bit towards the end because he was just so hot for allison so he really seemed to want to stay there and uh maybe there was a lot of nick left you know yeah I don't know.
5: he seemed to really be into it in this one it depends on the episode but in season one sometimes he likes it and sometimes he doesn't <laughs> what you mean in star smoking? crossed he, yeah and star crossed he was like picking up a pipe and smoking and in this he's like smoking because he's like this looks cool i'm gonna be in profile smoking in my hat and all that. But in Kamikaze Kid, he wasn't into it. He leaped in smoking and he's like, no thank you.
6: Yeah. And then the whole thing with his dad in Leap Home. Uh, That's like, he he does get a bit lectury about the whole smoking thing.
5: Yeah. But it did look cool.
6: Yeah, it did. He, he looked cool.
5: <laughs> I guess that's my thing with smoking. It looks cool on TV. It's not a good thing in real life. But exactly. <laughs> but if you watch it on TV, you're like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Smoking's cool. Yeah, they,
4: that was completely for atmosphere, completely for that noir effect.
5: Yeah, you see Dean Stockwell on his 300th cigar, and it's like, man, that looks cool.
6: <laughs> yeah. uh, has this become like the new Quantum Leap podcast thing? Smoking's cool, kids
5: smoke up kids <laughs>
6: <laughs> go steal mommy's Newport's. we need
4: t-shirts here's
5: the thing um fake cigarettes it's fine you can make your character smoke <laughs> with fake ones i think scott bacula also just thought it was cool i think he li- liked it as stage business yeah. i remember in shock theater when he's like smoking as gloria like he's he really playing it up don't
4: tell buddy um. Or, no, don't tell, tell Gloria, right? That was it. Yeah,
5: don't go tell Gloria. No, he didn't care what Buddy <laughs> thought. Was, Sorry. <laughs> Punch Buddy yeah, <laughs> across the face. Uh, uh, anyway. Oh, there's also, here's another season one Sam thing falls for a lady immediately. Oh, my He's God. He's just like, hot dang. Oh, yeah.
4: And, and no, like, no compunction. I mean, this is like, yeah. he, like thank you. Thank the you. Thank you. <laughs> <It's> just like,
5: <laughs> oh, yeah. He's yeah. like, boing as soon as he sees her. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, man, yeah, it throws me off every time when they say, like, her name, too. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> I think? know with Chris and Matt, you guys hear it more often, but usually Allison's are uh, not as common. Uh, they are usually evil, and I guess she didn't turn out to be bad in this one, but yeah. she is a red herring for a while, so. Yes. Allison just, I guess they've decided on TV it's kind of an evil name.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it, it was funny because, um, throughout the thing, I mean, she's such a sex pot. And um, I really thought uh, because I hadn't seen the episode in so long that Allison's she was a sex
6: pot. That's our other T-shirt.
4: Yeah, <laughs> she's not bad. She's drawn that way. Can't yeah.
5: uh- <laughs> help it if I look good in black.
4: <laughs> but uh, Claudia was really good. And um-
5: yes, oh yeah. Oh, you know what?
4: I'm such a dope. I completely forgot we have an interview with Claudia Christian uh, that's in the archives that we're going to be running on this episode. I'm sorry I didn't say it up top, but I was just so excited to talk to Allison again. But now that we're talking. <laughs> (laughs) Without Allison in the episode, it reminds me that uh,
5: Albie spoke to Claudia many moons ago. That was the first QLP interview. Yeah. Pretty crazy, huh?
6: And that was when I realized, hey, there's a load of interviews here I can start taking quotes from, maybe write a book about it. So this Claudia Christian started so much.
5: She started everything. Uh, (laughs) I remember that interview and uh, she just seems so cool. Um, She talks about her book and um, some of her struggles with alcoholism and stuff like that. It just seems like a really fascinating person. It's really easygoing in the interview, so... Yeah. yeah, everyone should uh should re-listen to that one. It was really good.
4: Definitely. Yeah, so that's coming up later in the show after the break. And uh so what do we think about this conceit? Another thing that was weird about this episode, and I think them just trying something and seeing how it works. Sam remembering what's going to happen because he quote read this book.
5: <laughs> I actually I really like this device. Um, it's just weird that Sam was reading this. Like choose your own ending (laughs) detective book from the fifties, which uh, apparently seemed like a—I don't know if this was a real thing. Maybe it was, but it seems kind of like a a throwaway concept, right? Like it's meant to kind of stay in that time. Every once everyone guessed the ending. Not really a a popular seller later.
4: Yeah, I, I I really I couldn't tell you. Like maybe he found an old copy in the basement in the cellar during one of the hurricanes or something. It just
5: seems like a weird thing for him to be into, especially because he seems yeah. to... I guess he likes Humphrey Bogart, but he seems to have contempt for picking up the lingo. He seems annoyed at himself.
6: And this is this is early days of Sam before we discover that he uh, knows the whole of Man of La Mancha and various other things that would stick a little bit more. Like, the whole musical thing ends up being a bit more of a trope through the following seasons, but... I don't think we've established that at this point, so he could just be... Yeah, he he could read crap fiction, or non-fiction.
5: Maybe he just read everything because he was bored, you know? You never have to read a book twice. Isn't that something from Prelude? He never had to read a book twice?
4: I don't recall, but it stands to reason with Sam's character, even though we don't know that much about him yet. Um, Just like you said, Allison, I think that he's probably, you know, three years old, taught himself to read. He can't go to school yet. (laughs) At
5: three, he's reading this murder mystery.
4: (laughs) And so he's just picking up anything that he can find that's lying around the house.
5: He's like, I think Allison did it. (laughs) She's the murderer.
4: He's reading the Feminine Mystique. The the
1: Clapper, the dropper named Clapper did it. (laughs) (laughs)
4: yeah so he read the book at three and he still remembers it at 43 or however old he was in this episode
5: but uh it stands to reason headcanon established Moving on, (laughs) (laughs) i do kind of like this device though i like that he remembers it and it's like what am i like psychic or something and then they find that book and use it like I, i thought it was an interesting way to do it instead of just having al throw out the information Like, Al is is working on it, but it's not just, you know, pick up the hand link and then say the info dump. Mm -hmm. Right.
4: And that's what I meant when I said I think they were trying things here. Yeah. To see how they could work this out every week and how to make it a little bit more dynamic instead of just, you know, hand linking info dump. But um, I guess expediency and uh, TV schedules forced them to just sort of get it, you know, routinized in the first act. (laughs) Yeah, as, as the show went on.
5: Sure, I think they, they were just, they were testing things out and I, I think that was fine. It was interesting because Sam sort of had an idea of what was going on before Al told him, so he wasn't just left in the dark through a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, like, how big were Al's pockets? He could fit that whole book <laughs> in one <laughs> pant pocket. And he had binoculars with him. What was going on?
6: It's like Mary Poppins' handbag in there. <laughs>
4: Yeah, he's got a bag of holding. He just came off his D&D campaign. <laughs> yeah, I was curious about that. I mean, so the physics, how did the physics of the imaging chamber work? Where he can use binoculars to see stuff up close? I just, I, is it, I guess it's like the holodeck in there, you know? Like yeah. the apparent distance is the same for him.
5: Well, like how does he use phones, you know, listening through them to talk to Sam or speaking through them? I mean, it makes no sense. <sighs> that felt like a, a holdover from season one stuff where they're like, I don't know, maybe Al can have props sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know.
4: Yeah, I've always said that if, you know, Sam can hear it, Al should be able to hear it. So that's how I explain the phone thing, because they're plugged into Sam. But, uh, you know, it it varies from episode to episode. So it's not even consistent in the show, really.
5: Yeah. I mean, I guess the binoculars, they were left over from what, horse racing? He seemed to have a horse racing subplot going on here. Maybe he had those.
4: You know? Oh, no, I just thought that he, like, maybe since he, he knew that he couldn't be everywhere at once in the imaging chamber if he saw a hot girl, he can just be a more a more effective
5: creeper. He could pop over if he wanted. I don't know that we established that yet at this point, so. <laughs> he definitely is kind of, like, silent but deadly, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. he just shows up with no warning or anything, just you see, like, some smoke and then he's there.
6: By this point, he's done the the uh, he's centered in on Miss Melny. Right, right. He's done that. Yeah, but he had to run down the street and disappear. He ran down the street and then disappeared yeah. and then reappeared in her car. So he he doesn't have to ogle from a distance. But
5: it's just <laughs> like when uh, in that commercial when he came in with the big bag of groceries. He really didn't have to. It's just it's <laughs> funny if he's
6: holding a big bag of groceries just for himself. <laughs> the most canon moment of the first season. Yeah. <laughs>
4: I just yeah I love that he had the binoculars that was just like oh that's like again sleazy season one Al he's so much more lecherous season one
5: (laughs) (laughs) he has a great line in this where they're talking about the dropper named Clapper and he goes careful
3: Sam there was no cure for that in 1953
5: Al we were talking about 'Cause of the binoculars and, and his giant pants pocket, his outfits. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about his clothes in this episode.
4: <laughs> I want your opinion on some of this stuff because this was borderline fantastic and ridiculous <laughs> in my opinion. But Allison, uh, it was please, kinda I've crazy. Missed, I've missed these discussions. <laughs> I love it.
5: What What's your problem? He he's going with kind of a theme for the fifties, but not quite literal. Like they could be from the nineties or, you know, whatever time period Al's supposed to be in, and like uh but they are they kinda remind me of zoot suits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um he's got this like these mirror pieces on the front of this black shirt. And he's he wore that a couple times, but I feel like that was something they were like, this is way too reflective. We we can't have this. <laughs> And he's wearing normal sunglasses when he walks in on Sam the first time. Like, not those weird red ones, but just normal ones, which feels weirder to me.
6: <laughs> he's too, too he's just normal. Wearing, okay.
5: and, and I don't know why he's wearing sunglasses at, at either point, but at least the red ones, it's kind of like, oh, it's the future. But here, it's like, what, did he just step in from horse racing? Like, he went into this underground cavern wearing sunglasses and just <laughs> kept them on. <laughs> why not?
6: <laughs> he's just very hungover. <laughs>
5: Uh, he also he's got this white suit that he wears at the end, mm. and I think he wears the suit again later, but the stuff underneath it not. Like he's wearing a cravat, which I think is the only time Al ever wears a cravat. <laughs> <laughs> that was
4: pretty snappy, but I couldn't get over like the four medals on his chest. What yeah,
5: he's the got hell? These metal- was that? What are the medals? They're they're supposed to be military medals, right? But
6: they they look a bit military, but they they don't match the ones that he's wearing in the the very next episode. So, yeah, I, I, I think this supposed yeah. be like
4: decorative. That's like some Michael Jackson bullshit right there. I mean, it, 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 yes. it just seems like decorative to be decorative. Some, and-
5: some stolen valor here from Al. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: It's like what, like, and he's like, he's a decorated POW. You think he would wear or just like medals, like casual fake medals. I don't know. I again we don't know much about the character right now, but
5: it's a strange choice. I, I think it's just because they hadn't established what exactly his role in the military was yet, because it wasn't until the next episode they established he was an admiral. So I think they were like he was in the Navy. I don't know, here's some some sort of military insignia.
6: But they do look like I don't know, maybe it's because we're used to seeing him in Honeymoon Express and uh Leap Home Part 2. They look like fashion accessories rather than... Yes. There there is something very fake looking about them.
5: They do look fake. Did you not analyze these to see what they were, Matt? I feel like someone did. Uh, no. Um, Maybe that was on the the quantum leap analysis it was on, quantum
6: uh, leap analysis she analyzed all of the actual military medals and she never analyzed these ones and i never asked oh, her but i assumed that was because she identified that they were tosh yeah because i think i i feel she would have done if they had have been
5: oh she definitely would she she's all in on what al what's going on with al what's his uh yes. his medals mean all this stuff yeah. Down to like what were his rings and all that. Yeah. But yeah, so maybe it was just something in their prop department, you know, they were this looks sort of military, or maybe uh Jean-Pierre Dorliac decided that would fit the outfit or something. Not really sure. It seems like Al would be like, that's disrespectful. Yeah. Steak, you know? that, yeah, that's
4: that's what I would think too. So it just struck me as an odd choice. But again, we hadn't really established his background yet. So yeah. I I I chalked that up to season one. Again, we're, we're just trying stuff and This is how Al looks outrageous this week. You know, we got mirrored shirts and weird medals and cravats,
5: so. (laughs) 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 The cravat, it just gets me. He just doesn't seem like a cravat person, you know? It's just so fancy. But you know what? He looks good. You know what? They both looked good. (laughs) Scott Bakula looked... (gasps) Fabulous! In this Holy episode. crap!
6: <laughs> this, this is why this episode was responsible for the starring Scott Bakula clip for the next year or two.
5: Oh my god, his hair swirl never looked better. <laughs> it was like on full display with the slick back. It was very good.
4: Yeah, yes. no, he looked he looked fabulous in this episode. It was just like, oh my god, I forgot how handsome Scott is.
5: <laughs> they were absolutely correct to use that shot for the intro. <laughs> <laughs>
4: So one thing that that is also like within the DNA of Quantum Leap to come is sort of that that boomer nostalgia and here we have uh this Humphrey Bogart lookalike just because
5: that guy had to be a professional bogey lookalike, right? Cuz he has like next to no credits. I would have to just assume, yeah.
4: yeah. I mean, what who else would they get? And he's not really, you know,
5: very convincing. As a Humphrey Bogart impersonator in my book, <laughs> it's not like that one guy who just made his entire living because he looked like Humphrey Bogart. <laughs>
4: <laughs> he just mildly resembles him, sort of if you squint,
5: you know. <laughs> yeah, well, he's enough to convince young Woody Allen, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> now they don't
4: name that was the other thing. This this kiss with history that is—is is it a kiss with history? Because they just call him Boy in the credits. They don't, and and the mom calls him Allen,
5: not Woody. So, yeah, but that's definitely yeah. what they're doing
0: <laughs> My analyst calls it neurotic Of course it's neurotic If he lived with my mother, he'd be neurotic too She drives me bananas
6: The script calls him a red-headed kid Who looks like Woody Allen Yeah
5: well, I mean, he talks about Annie and all that stuff I mean, like, he's... Yeah,
4: Yeah, I I think it was a very thinly veiled Allen But they never really established That it
5: was him. Yeah, why would his mom call him Allen? Was that his, like, birth name or
6: something? Yeah, he was born Alan Konigsberg. Oh,
5: well, there you go. They were uh, they were being accurate with it. Right? right?
6: As accurate as any of this seems.
5: <laughs> More accurate than uh, Michael Jackson in a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly where I was going to go.
6: This is so much better researched. <laughs> yeah
4: i that that stuck out to me is okay enough we get it it's this gonna be every episode it
5: was just a, it was not a very funny gag that people kept thinking he was humphrey bogart <laughs> i do like that sam was really into it just like in a cosplay sense like he's like oh heck yeah <laughs> <Humphrey> <laughs> Bogart.
6: <laughs> you say it's not a funny gag that the the old woman that like hits him with the handbag is brilliant
5: Wait, okay, what's that woman's deal,
6: though? Why'd she do that? Like, <laughs> I <think> she's, like, <laughs> she's annoyed at him for looking like Bogie. Like, how dare yeah, she you? she thought it
5: was him, and he's just like, no. And then she's like, oh, I'm going to hit you. It's like, what? Sam didn't do anything. Come on, man.
6: I it's brilliant.
5: <laughs> what's your problem, lady? <laughs> like, the band thinks it's him and starts playing. Like, the orchestra starts playing. Uh, was it from Casablanca or something?
4: Yeah, as time yeah. goes by. they start. Playing. Right, as time yeah. goes by. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they, they really hammed that up. And again, I think it was, uh, let's see how many nostalgia buttons we can push here.
5: <laughs> well, that's what you if you're going to do a noir thing, you're going to do Casablanca, right? I mean, I guess. Feels like that's like the gimme for that. The most recognizable uh, noir film. I mean, they straight up are just doing Casablanca at the end. Yeah,
4: they are. <laughs> and yeah, arguably, that that can be considered a true statement. Maybe one of the most recognizable noir films of all time, for sure. Mm. There are much better ones, in my opinion, but yeah, it does set a standard. And mm-hmm. uh, they're really leaning heavily into that as well. And I think to the episode's detriment at times, because when they're walking away and Al says, No, Sam,
3: I think, don't say it, Al, this is the start of a wonderful friendship. You couldn't resist, couldn't you?
4: Why is Sam mad at him for saying that? Don't say it. Don't say it. It's like, okay, this is a bad joke.
5: Because he's the only one that's able to do the cosplay. <laughs> Al cannot play with him until they're doing the Don Quixote stuff, and then he's fine. But otherwise, he's like, "No, don't you? Yes, and me."
4: <laughs> but I love how Sam is like chiding him and leaping at the same time.
5: Yeah, because he has to argue with him when he when he leaves. <laughs> Sam loves to bicker, is the thing.
4: <laughs> that, so that that part of that part of it fell flat for me. I like the whole bogey thing, and maybe it's it's again part of the show that um, wasn't meant for us, right? I mean. Matt, you you very um, astutely put in the rundown. Would anyone care today <laughs> about Humphrey Bogart?
5: I I think they still would. I okay. I don't think so. I mean, I, this is just speaking from myself, but I mean, I I think people. I mean, Casablanca is a classic. Humphrey Bogart um, is pretty recognizable, so I think people would still recognize him today. There's some references where it's like maybe this wouldn't hold up very well, but I think people would still know Humphrey Bogart.
6: They would. I just, I feel that if the new series were to do something like that, there are, um, and again, this is just the fact that 30 years have gone by, there are more modern equivalents that would be picked.
5: Yeah, but I mean, if you're doing a noir thing, why wouldn't you do Humphrey Bogart and uh, Casablanca? I don't even know what other noir films or noir stars would hold up that well uh, if you were going to do that kind of... uh, play on the genre
6: noir style, sure but then i don't think that would necessarily bring with it the oh everyone thinks he's humphrey Bogart. i think if the new series did some kind of more 80s or 90s genre style episode there could be an equivalent star then that they they have that running gag with but i i think the, the running gag with bogey is that that dates this episode tremendously
5: Sure. I mean, I think there definitely was a nostalgia for that sort of thing and a fascination with Humphrey Bogart that that happened a lot around that time, the 80s and 90s. Yeah. But I mean, I, I still think he'd be recognizable now, but I mean, who would they do in the... I don't know if they would do a joke like this in the new show. It doesn't seem like something they would do, you know, to be like, oh, you look just like... Uh... Michael J. Fox. Michael Jackson, Michael J. Fox, you know, like, no. <laughs> and then people keep confusing him. It's, I don't think it's really that funny of a joke. <laughs> well, no, I yeah. don't mind the fact that, you know, there's these nods toward it, but the fact that everyone thinks he looks like him, it, it wasn't really that funny to begin with.
4: <laughs> I, I, I agree. Again, I think it was just to stoke some kind of nostalgia feeling to keep boomers interested. And they kept that all the way through to Maryland in season five. So.
5: But this was at least he just kind of looked like him. If it was season five, he would absolutely just leap in Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like Humphrey Bogart would be there. Yeah. All right. He would be in the Seymour role like, ah, oh, gee willikers, Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have
4: so much to say about Seymour. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Willie Garson, God love him. Rest in peace, Willie Garson. Leo Harvey Oswald, uh, you know, big, big in Quantum Leap fandom. So miscast here. He's supposed to be a kid. He looks like he's my age.
5: (laughs) Hi, everyone. It's me, Seymour. Yeah, I don't know if I bought him as a kid, although I don't think he was that old. But I think he had an interesting dynamic with Sam. I kind of liked the character. I liked him better in this than Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, I guess you're not supposed to like Lee Harvey Oswald, but that episode was a little bit of a mess.
4: Yeah, I mean, listen, I, Willie Garson's a talented dude, and I enjoyed his performance in this, but mm-hmm. it just seemed like um, a slightly younger man desperately looking for the approval of a person who's by all accounts a total dick to him. Yes,
5: yeah, he's he's a dork looking for approval, right? He wants to be like as cool as these like big guns, this hotshot detective kind of thing, and then, uh but he's just too much of a wiener dork face, you know.
4: Yeah, but, I mean, Nick takes full advantage of that. Everyone's
5: just bullying him. Exactly. Everyone's just bullying. They're like, ah, his glasses fell out. Let's bet on how long it takes him to put the, the glass back in. I
6: can't tell if we're supposed to find that funny.
5: It's it's. I don't think you're supposed to find it funny. I think Sam was like, hey, quit being a dick. But he was a little bit of a dick to him, too. Yeah. But
4: I, this is where I think now... That, that he is psychosynergizing with Nick in this as, yeah. as the episode goes on because Nick is apparently an call He's never paid for – he steals a newspaper from Seymour every day. It's the, oh, kid's, yeah. kid's, it's the kid's livelihood and he just takes the newspaper.
5: <laughs> he lets him do it because he's just like, you're my hero. <laughs> you
4: know, he's, he wants to sleep with
5: his partner's wife. He's just He's just oh, not yeah. a good guy. He's a hard-boiled detective. He ain't there to be a good guy. He's there to so. get the answers.
4: I think that plays <laughs> into the, to the scene with Al, though. That that sort of very out-of-character scene where oh, yeah, he yeah. just basically dresses Al down and calls him a drunk and tells him to, to go screw off. Yeah,
3: well, my instinct tells me that that broad has got you tied in knots this way. That your instincts got you married five times, right? That your Swiss cheese brain remembers. Well, I want to tell you something, pal. You haven't been getting any lately. Don't compare me to yourself. I think with my brain and I don't cloud my judgment with a bottle.
5: Ah! didn't it just, like, hit you right in the heart, right, when he says that to him? And then Owls look like, uh, well, I <laughs> guess I gotta go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think this is the first kind of, um, real, uh, addressing of Owl's alcoholism as alcoholism, too. Because there's uh, mentions of it in the pilot, you know, that he's hung over and all that and it's played for comedy. But here it's kind of like this is an issue and it does hit him hard. And especially when you know more about their backstory later, the fact that, you know, Al was drunkenly attacking a vending machine. You know, it seems like Sam kind of helped him dry out and all that. The fact that he throws that in his face kind of really got to him.
4: Yeah, and to me, it's such a low blow for uh, the history that they supposedly share and, you know, that they're such good friends. I don't think that Sam would attack him in that way. That's why I think that's Nick coming through.
5: Well, I think it also hurt Al because Sam still doesn't really know their entire relationship yet. True. He may not remember all the things that they've been through and the fact that he'd throw that at him uh, after everything. It doesn't really seem that in character for him, so that must have hurt worse.
6: Yeah. It feels like Sam's just throwing that out there thoughtlessly, and possibly, yeah, not not knowing the full weight of it. And that moment, that that look that Dean Stockwell has as Al reacting to it, it is uh, as as you said, it's the first moment that we realise that this is something serious. It's quite a shocking moment.
5: I, I really love the way that Dean Stockwell plays it because. Al is the kind of character who who kind of keeps things to himself. so you know that he's hurt by it, but he's willing to kind of let it roll off his back like it's it it still hurts him. but he he makes up some excuse about going to the races and leaves. And I don't think he would have brought it up again, except mm. Sam does.
4: Yeah, and I feel like it, as as we go on, Sam is sort of reasserting his dominance, and he realizes what a jerk he's been now. I thought that the yeah. whole thing where he was, um, you know, he did the same thing to Seymour in the cab. Yeah. I think he was doing that to, to keep Seymour safe, to make sure that he is not in the line of fire.
5: Oh, yeah. But at one point, he is doing that. I think at another point, he is annoyed with him, and that's when he realizes that he's being kind of a dick. It's just a weird dynamic. We don't often see
4: Sam act this way. So, yeah. Again, knowing knowing what we know, you know, if we cross the timeline here, that he does sometimes retain more bits of his host than others, then it makes much more sense to me in-universe. Because otherwise, Sam does not come across very well here in some scenes. And and I, I, I can't – knowing the character as well as we do, I, I just can't reconcile it in any other way. I just don't think that he would do that to Al.
5: Yeah, I, th- I think some of it is that and I think like I don't know, he's kind of cranky about a lot of stuff in this episode. Maybe he's like harboring some feelings about all sorts of stuff. Cuz I mean, he he says this line to uh to Seymour in the car uh when Seymour's saying like, "You know, I just want to be just like you. That's why I'm I'm like this, like I I want to be like you, Nick."
3: And Sam says, if I'm lucky, I'm going to spend the rest of my life leaping around from one place to another instead of face down in a pool of blood.
5: It's kind of, I don't know, nihilistic almost. It's like If I'm lucky, I'm going to be leaping forever uh, instead of being murdered horribly. And it kind of hits different after you see the finale, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, he, I guess he was lucky. <laughs> he got his wish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? But I mean, like, that's kind of – maybe it's just hitting Sam hard, you know? Like, he's just like, I ain't getting out of this sleeping thing. Maybe some of that's getting to him. Yeah. I think part of it is psychosynergizing of some sort, because, I mean, that makes sense to me. The, the, he's got this
4: weird guilt, though, because you can tell he's totally into Allison. And he just – he oh, yeah. wants he hmm. wants to do nothing more than, than take her back to his apartment. Um, But he seems to be – Angry that he's having those feelings. And that's another thing that's that's putting him on on edge. And when Al points it out, he says, I think with my mind or something. I think with my brain. That's what he says right before he calls him a drunk. So basically – and listen, Al gave him precedence for this because he's literally staring through binoculars at somebody's boobs. (laughs) <laughs> like in that scene so yeah i think maybe you, maybe you aren't thinking with your dick al
5: <laughs> a typical but... inconsistent al right because he's just like hey guess what sam you're just not getting any maybe that's why you're being like this then he's just like yeah shut up and then like he goes and like makes out with allison and then al seems like pissed off like he seems jealous that sam is making out with her for so long and he's standing there like giving him the stink eye you know <laughs> what do you want al do you want him to get some or don't you
4: Right, and this is another thing where we've seen now. It's like you want him to get some, but you want to watch. Like, why are you so interested in him getting laid?
5: It seemed like he mm. doesn't want to watch. Maybe he's like, get some, but do it privately. <laughs> I want to be, get in on this. I don't want it to happen like without me. So don't, <laughs> don't do it in front of me. <laughs> I'm gonna go check the ladies' bathroom. <laughs> Okay, here's the thing, too, about the the ladies' bathroom thing, right? He goes to check the ladies' bathroom because presumably Allison could be in there. Also, he's being a pervo. Somebody's got to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. I don't get what's appealing about watching women in the bathroom. I'm sorry. <laughs> like. Maybe you'll get a view of something, but, like, what's the... I mean, is he into that? Is, I guess there's some people who are into that, but it just seems like... I
6: hope you're not expecting Chris or I to explain this, because if if we could, we're not going to do it on a podcast.
5: <laughs> okay, I guess, uh, I, I guess I'll leave that to... I guess uh, there's something for everyone, but I just don't see... I feel like there are, there are other opportunities that are less gross than that.
6: <laughs> well, especially... <laughs> a hologram that can go anywhere and see anything it's 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 a very specific um perversion very specific kink i should say. sorry <laughs> i
5: have a piss kink i'm sorry <laughs>
4: <laughs>
5: Should okay. we cut that? I don't know.
4: <laughs> no piss shaming on this show.
5: <laughs> okay, all right. I'll I'll leave that where it is. <laughs> There's a lot of other things going on in this episode. He's, imagine he's, how good it is to have you back. <laughs> yeah, I come back and I pull that out. we already I'll, talking I about piss. <laughs> I'll understand if I'm not invited back. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh man we're no more blue than alice in this episode so we're fine yeah i think we're he all seems
5: right. to he seems to also have a gambling problem doesn't he i mean maybe he's just likes gambling i don't know if it's really a problem but he is talking about betting on the races
4: yeah, but you know, I, I I don't know if that's a problem. I mean you go sometimes you go to the track and, and you bet on the horses. It doesn't mean you have pro if he's doing it like if, at the OTB every afternoon, then yeah, but it there's no indication of that. Sometimes I go up to Saratoga and I go to Saratoga Springs racetrack. I don't make yeah I do it once every few years, but
6: I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't mean you got a problem.
5: It seems like it was enough of a problem that Al tried to use time travel to an advantage with it, and then Sam said that they couldn't. Also they said in Tale of Two Sweeties.
4: <laughs> they couldn't until they could in uh right-handed god <laughs> yeah whatever <laughs> actually they could until they couldn't
5: <laughs> i don't know yeah i don't think it comes up that often el's gambling stuff i guess it's not everything's an addiction but it just seems like with him there's no in between yeah yeah you
4: think he's got an addictive personality so if yeah. he's prone to one he might be prone to the other
5: yes yeah. i did like um when uh, Sam makes up with him in the car, you know, he's kind of alluding to this stuff, but Seymour's in the car with him, so he can't outright say it. Like, Al's like, Well,
3: let's not get mushy about it.
5: That's the resolution for it. Like, mm. <laughs> It's just kind of nice.
4: And that was, uh, I think, very realistic, too. I mean, when guys, uh, well, in my experience, if if you've had a falling out, you usually just like, all right, let's forget about it. You know, it's not yeah. like yeah. A, a big heart's a heart or a big moment.
5: yeah. Well, and you can tell like it's it's still meaningful for yeah, him, but that's no, just how he reacts
4: to these sort of things, which is which is great. We're not going to dwell on it, and that's great. Yeah, but he he hears him, and Sam realizes that he hears him, and I think that fence is mended until yeah. Sam becomes a dick at the airport and yells at him for saying this is the start of a beautiful French <laughs> <laughs> for no
5: reason. <laughs> that that was some good natured uh, bickering, you know. Yeah. So so tell me what Lionel's plan
4: was. So he killed. Not Nick. Who's who's Nick's partner? <laughs> he uh, killed. He killed the dead guy, Grimby. He Gr- killed Grimsby. Guy. Was Grimsby, Grimsby the name of the? Yeah, Grimsby. He kills Grimsby, and he says that he did it because Allison was in love with him. But Allison is like tied up in the plane.
5: Yeah, he was just obsessed with her. You know. So
4: is he, is he a complete psychopath? I guess. I mean, because he made it seem like they were in it together. And then she's, I'm wondering if they made that choice as the, you know, they, maybe they were writing and or shooting and then they realized that maybe they didn't want to have Allison be a bad person after all, because it just seems odd.
5: He's, uh,
4: I think it's just to set up the red herring, you know? No, no, I understand. But so he was going to kidnap her. How did he get her on the plane? Was this a private plane? Like, how was he going to take her away to this island <laughs> in ropes? Yeah, you know? she's all
5: tied up and it's like, hey, don't worry about it. And again, no no, no <laughs> king shaving <laughs> either.
4: Maybe
6: that's what she's into. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> she's clearly into a lot.
5: I don't know. Did it seem like it was a private plane? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure what the, how far the plan went. But apparently he got away with it originally somehow. Yeah, I, I guess.
4: I guess. That's a good point. He's smarter than I am. Okay. I'll <laughs> buy that.
5: I do like when um, when he has her tied up and uh, and he's shooting and then Al's just casually walking into gunfire. <laughs> yeah. Because like, it doesn't matter. Like That's what's fun with the hologram stuff. That you just walk around with bullets through him, just kind of annoyed that he's being shot through. <laughs> and I love he tells him he has gunk in his mustache and it's yucky. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if you have you clean your mustache, you got gunk in there. It's yucky. He's an admiral and he's like, this is yucky.
6: <laughs> We get some classic in this episode,
5: <laughs> yeah. Like uh, even like when he's like he shows up in the um in the 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 club and he's conducting the orchestra, yes, just mm, for yeah. no one's amusement but him and Sam, I guess.
4: <laughs> and he stands through the roof of the car as it's pulling away. Instead of you know, yeah, I, I, I like that too. And that was a good shot. Usually you can see the step down in quality, but I think that composite worked really well. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, and you know, it was really difficult to pull off a shot like that, too, because he's got to, like, start in the background, kind of walk into the foreground, and you have to get the perspectives and the proportions correct with him and Scott Bakula, because he's on the uh, the blue screen. Yeah. I guess they know what they're doing over there. Those kids at NBC are going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) I think also, again, that's something that comes from time and money. They were able to do that on film. And take the time to get the proportions correct. And they didn't always get it correct. Like, it was a learning process. But when they they finally got down what they were doing, they were able to do that. As opposed to, like, season four and five, they were doing things on tape. Uh, they had to mm. get it done a little more quickly. They couldn't do as many shots as they wanted to. So, yeah, you get, like, some cool shots like that in season one because they had a little bit more time for it.
4: Yeah, well, it shows, like, the lavish amount of money that they must have spent on this episode really shows on screen. And uh, Matt, I was going to ask you about the shooting locations, because that hotel that he's his office was in was beautiful. Where where was that at? Do you know?
6: Yeah, that's the, uh, the the Bradbury. Yeah, the Bradbury building. That's a famous location, isn't it? Yeah, that was used in Blade Runner and a bunch of other stuff, but that's it's most known for Blade Runner. I've been there a couple of times. It's in downtown LA, and it looks exactly like that. They did nothing to it.
5: Is it a historical building, like it's protected? I think so. I would hope so. Because if it looks like that still, I would think maybe it's historical and they're not allowed to rebuild on it.
4: And you have all of that deco architecture that's a real snapshot of, of the period. So I can't imagine that that would be anything but an asset at this point, you know? It's
6: built in 1893, and it's the oldest commercial building in LA. It's a national historical landmark. And yeah, it's, it's free to just go in and wander around and um, very, very cool place. Really neat, really neat. And
4: that, that I guess, the, the club what was it, the indigo, the blue indigo, whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know anything about that, but. That must have been a set. I'm, I'm thinking they just built a set for that. Yeah. But oh, the level of detail there, too, with those lamps that were on the table that were like the silhouettes and uh, right down to like the, the martini glasses. I loved everything about it. It just looked so yeah. cool.
5: Having like a cigarette girl walking around and like all that stuff.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, kudos for that. I mean, if you want to show everybody, hey, you want to see what we can do, this is a great one to show.
6: Yeah.
5: Yeah. Oh, there's no mistaking the time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, there is,
4: because it's supposed
5: to be
3: 1954.
5: (laughs) (laughs) They're they're imitating
4: the
3: 40s a little bit,
5: but... More like the 30s, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but you kind of know what they're going for, you know? Like, it looks like a period piece.
6: There's no mistaking the time period they're going for. Yeah, (laughs) there's no mistaking the
5: time period they wished it was. (laughs) Yes.
4: I have two questions. Matt, I think maybe you can answer this uh, more readily, but is this the first time Al mentions his, quote, first
3: wife?
6: It is, his redhead.
3: She was a flamer. A redhead who could make Father Flanagan forget Boys Town. And my first wife was just like that. <laughs> yeah,
5: his redheaded first wife.
4: <laughs> so, I'm, again, I'm trying to retcon that and say, well, the line is more than that she's a redhead, but that she like a real sparker or something like that. I think maybe it was talking about the personality traits as opposed to the actual physical traits. That's the way I'm going to fix that in my head because
6: <laughs> Susan, is, is she's many things, but she's not a redhead. <laughs> That's more about the personality.
4: Yeah, Beth could make priests horny. Yes. I can see that. All right, that'll work. And the other question I had, again, Matt, you might know better. Did the theme song seem slower on this episode? Or is it just that long since I've seen an episode of the classic series? And I'm not used to hearing the theme because it sure seemed a little draggy.
6: Which version did you watch? Because it's this is the the theme tune has been screwed up on various different releases for this episode.
4: Ah, uh, okay. I watched whatever's on Peacock, so I don't know what that would be.
6: Oh, I have no idea what they've done on Peacock, but it's yeah, um, yeah. The original DVD release uh, used a syndicated version that had like the season two opening credits. I think by accident.
5: Well, I think the ones on Peacock are probably the HD remasters, though it wouldn't be yeah. from
6: the original DVDs. That's true, and the HD remasters are all fixed, so there shouldn't it shouldn't be. Any it did
5: issue. seem like the end credits version of the theme was slightly redone, though, right? Like for this episode.
6: Yeah, possibly. Yeah,
5: I, the end credits seem pretty
6: slapdash too. The opening credits are missing the very start of the theme, even in the HD version. Oh, that that first. Whale with the um the logo flying by.
4: So I wasn't crazy, thank you. Vindicated. I, I am, it's I definitely, am. It, it is
6: definitely different. Otherwise
4: I was gonna start to feel like Lionel.
6: <laughs> it's, it's just
4: me, it's it's in my head. I have to kidnap this theme and fly it to Bora Bora.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I mean that's that's those were my two my two little pieces of ephemera. I don't know how much more I have to say about Seymour. You guys have anything else uh, burning in your hearts about Play It Again, Seymour, or should we get to some final thoughts?
6: Like a flaming redhead. <laughs> um,
5: I got a few more notes. How about
6: you, Matt? I don't think I've got anything else.
5: Well, have at it, Allison. All right. Uh, the line about Seymour. <laughs> He's, a, he's an orphan, right? <laughs> he was abandoned mm. on a stoop.
3: <laughs> Left on a stoop in the village. I grew up in the East End Orphanage.
5: I was having real Blood Moon flashbacks and abandoned <laughs> on a stoop. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like such a TV thing. Did this happen in real life where people abandoned on stoops in front of orphanages? Like, even in, in like modern times? I feel like maybe this feels like an old thing that would happen. But... All
4: the time. Yeah, no. Oh, I, I never told you guys this. My parents found me in a basket on their doorstep. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It seems like another like weird 30s movie convention.
5: So yeah, I don't know why they needed that detail. They could have just said that he was like an orphan. He lived on the streets or something. It just seems like it's unnecessarily ludicrous.
4: Yeah, but you also think that he might be a little bit more seasoned and a little bit more street tough. That's
5: true. He's just bullied all the time.
4: Maybe yeah, uh, so. Maybe
5: he just got, you know... Really down on himself living on the street. Everyone treats him like dirt.
4: Aww. Especially Nick. He's drawn to that, obviously. He has no self-worth, so he just surrounds himself with people that are going to abuse him and uh, make him seek constant validation. It's a weird, weird dynamic if you look into it very deeply. Seymour's a deeply disturbed person.
5: <laughs> <laughs> it seems weird when you say it, but uh, but Sam bullied two orphans in this episode. <laughs> Yeah. He's just bullying Alan Seymour. He just loves What's bullying wrong orphans. with Sam? Sam's a dick. Evil Sam Beckett.
6: <laughs> oh, did he have a goatee? Yeah, dan done, <laughs> This isn't Sam, it's Lothos.
5: Okay, uh, uh, more stuff in the notes. There was a Magnum PI reference. I think maybe this yes. is. Yes, I have that here too, the I Second, because the it. pilot had one as well. Mm hmm. Love them Magnum P.I. references. But but Pilot had one as if
4: Sam lived in the Magnum universe. Yeah, confusing. This one was more like Magnum is a fictional
5: detective. It's both. (laughs) Yeah.
6: Yeah. And then another mother, Magnum, comes up again definitely as a fictional detective.
5: Uh, Confusing lore. Right. Did the new series get into this? I haven't caught up. (laughs) <laughs> have they uh, explained yet, the but- magnum pi lore oh, oh
4: you didn't see the the back five uh uh raymond was just wearing hawaiian shirts the yeah. entire time yeah. yes <laughs> you missed it you missed it <laughs>
5: uh, i gotta catch up and see that yeah okay so uh more notes uh there's a couple other cast members in this episode that were reused later we have uh richard real who is one of the cops in the jail in the beginning he was also in leaping in without a net as uh one of the circus promoters yep uh, and there's also Paul Link as Lionel, who was the sheriff in The Boogeyman, or for this episode, The Bogeyman. <laughs> 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 that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly so.
1: <laughs>
5: yes. Yeah, so just thought that was kind of interesting. And um, yeah, one more thing. Uh, this ends the leap out into What Price Gloria, but that's not what the opening episode yes. for season two was.
4: Yeah, so I wanted to maybe get into that when we were talking about what's coming up next, but since you brought it up, Matt, I know that you probably have a whole chapter devoted to why this happened.
6: I, I, yeah, it's relatively straightforward. I mean, um, What Price Gloria and A Portrait for Troyan from season two were filmed as part of the season one block, and then they went on hiatus and then decided that um, instead of opening with Gloria, uh, they would open with Honeymoon Express and they switched them around. Simple as that.
5: It confuses the hell out of people who are just starting Quantum Leap and haven't gotten into yes. the season two. Everything ends in uh, like it is, the leap outs are all swapped around or repeated or whatever. So this is the first time
6: they're like, "What?" This is the first one that's really stuffed up, and it's and it's for those of us that have tried to fix them, it's impossible to fix because Honeymoon Express uh, does not have a proper leap in since we start off with him stuck up a tree. Although, if you watch um, Play It against Seymour in France. They have fixed the leap out so that it leaps into the main leap for Honeymoon Express with him on the train, So, which kind of, it's it's a good compromise to make it work.
5: Yeah, I think that would be acceptable.
6: Yeah. And I think some, some syndicated repeats in the US have done it like that as well. I've not seen that, but so I've read.
5: Did they know then, I mean, they had to have known that Play It Again Seymour was the last episode that was going to air for the season, right?
6: Yeah, I think they'd, they'd filmed Gloria and Trojan specifically just to give themselves a head start and just have a 20-episode block for season two. Oh,
5: okay. Th- they absolutely had to have had a conversation where they were like, how about let's not have the season opener be the girl one in case it doesn't work yes. out? Yes. In case people aren't into it?
4: <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And I, I'm sure I've asked this on the podcast before, but please refresh my memory. Why in the hell is season one so short? Mm-hmm.
5: I think it was just a half-season order, wasn't it? Um, yeah. It was... Yeah, it it, only
4: started mid-season.
5: Yeah, it was a mid-season replacement,
4: right? Okay, that's what I was getting at. Was it a summer series or or a mid-season replacement?
6: Yeah, no, it started in the spring, so...
5: Do you know what it was it replaced? Magnum P.I. No. (laughs) Magnum P.I. I'm just curious what got cancelled and uh, Quantum Leap took its place.
4: Well, also summer was summer was rerun season too. So if it started in the spring, maybe there was another show that was on that was popular that was going on hiatus for a, a few weeks, and they wanted something to put in
6: its place. It, it was it was March to May when I say spring. So it was it was the end of what would have been the the normal. Oh, then that does
4: sound like a mid season replacement. Something did get cancelled. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Hmm. Thanks to whatever show got canned. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to find out. It was gung-ho. Oh, man.
6: I have (laughs) the information that I I should be able to find this out. I should be able to find this out before that we're even done with this recording. It's not something I've ever questioned.
5: Yeah, please find out. I'm just curious. I know it's not really that relevant, but maybe I'll check out whatever show (laughs) got... uh... Whatever show called got it quits axe. early, yeah, got the axe. Right, whatever one got gunned down, it was crushing <laughs> daisies or whatever. By a clapper, <laughs> by a clapper, a dropper, not a clapper. Now, dropper named well. clapper, <laughs> put some lead in it.
4: Matt, we are going to let you uh, look that up. Maybe you can let us know later in the show what you find. Yes. And uh, But why don't we get into some final thoughts in the meantime about Play It Against Seymour,
5: Allison Pregler. <laughs> this was a fun episode. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I enjoy the style of it. I think it's pretty breezy. It goes by pretty quick. It's got lots of good character stuff, and it's got interesting things that maybe you wouldn't see later. How about you, Matt?
6: Yeah, it's it's a really it's a fun way to end the season. I love the um the very ending as they're walking off. It it doesn't really fit well with the rest of the episode, but it does just kind of tie a bow on the season very nicely. And it would have left me wanting more, knowing that we had a few months off.
4: And I, I'm going to agree. I think this episode is a high bar for season one and a high bar for the series overall. Um I'm not crazy about the story per se, but just the look of it, the ambition, the scope, and how they proved what they could do with this series, how they hint you that this is unlimited. And just given the resources, look what we can give you. And I feel like we slowly lost that as the series went on. And, um, I, I think the series suffers for it because something like, imagine if every episode was as lavish as this one. Oh, yeah. Wow wow and that's not to say i mean we love quantum leap we think it's terrific all the way through but this one is just a cut above so yeah i i enjoyed it much more than i anticipated enjoying it and uh, i was just completely blown away by how beautiful everything was that was on screen so good job to everybody over there at nbc and uh good job allison pregler back in the saddle oh, <laughs> oh. thanks <laughs> And uh, with that, uh, we will take a break. But don't go anywhere because after that break, we will be bringing you our interview with Claudia Christian. Thank
2: you. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash Podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the Quantum Leap Podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you.
3: This is Scott Bakula, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast.
6: When we come back, I, I've got some interesting information about... Yeah, well, we, well uh, hey,
4: guess what? Guess what? We are back. <laughs> so what wh- did you find? Wait, wait, what'd you find?
6: <laughs> I, I can't believe I never actually looked this up before. So um, it's kind of a mid-season replacement um, for Miami Vice's final season was what? airing on Friday nights until halfway through the final season. And it stopped on March 17th, Friday, March 17th, 89. Miami Vice season five, episode 14 aired. The week after that, Starcrossed aired. And that was a run of like four episodes of Quantum Leap in that same Friday night slot, and then Miami Vice came back April twenty eighth, Friday April twenty eighth, which is when Quantum Leap got bumped to Wednesdays, and Miami Vice finished off its first se- its final season on Fridays. So the first four episodes were a mid season replacement or or, or a mid season filler, yeah, I guess yeah. For, to, for to fill Vons. in the hiatus. Yeah, Miami Vice went on a one-month hiatus and, and Quantum Leap filled in the gap. Oh, that's interesting.
4: But you have to think that NBC was behind this show 100% then, because Miami Vice was not just some little show. Miami Vice was Miami f***ing Vice. It was <laughs> like, it was it was the
5: show. I mean, well, Belisario at that time uh, was just uh, a king on television, right? That's the whole reason Quantum Leap even happened. Because it was such an insane concept. If it wasn't Belisario, it wouldn't have happened. You know, he proved himself with Magnum PI. So
6: I've got to say, yeah, I guess what they believed on, in it somewhat. What was on Wednesdays before Color of Truth? So, Color of Truth was Wednesday, 3rd of May. <laughs> you are such a I love this. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do love this Miami Vice. <laughs> so, the week before Color of Truth um, was a repeat of Nightingales. And the week before that was Nightingale's. The week before that was Nightingale's. Okay, so Nightingale's was on the Wednesday slot.
4: If I had to guess, I'd say that's like a nurse
6: drama. I have not heard of that. So right, list of Nightingale's episodes Wikipedia. What?
4: I, I'm going to say it's a nurse drama starring Susan Deal.
6: Now I've got a British TV series. <laughs> Nightingale's
5: TV series. There's one from 1990 and then there's one from 1989.
6: I'm
4: guessing it would be the 89 one then, right?
5: 89 one is uh, about nurses, yeah.
4: Yep, there you go. And who did start? It
5: lasted 13 episodes.
4: <laughs> ah, okay. And it had Dana Five Delaney. Five pretty
5: nurse students and their boss, Leonore, are the focus of this TV series. They're all living together in a villa called Nightingale House, located in Los Angeles. Blee, 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 blee. Yes, it's a drama about nurses. That sounds terrible. Oh <laughs> Kill me now. <laughs> Chelsea Fields in it, Scott Bakula's future wife. Yeah uh, Roxanne Dawson's in it too You guys might know her from Fridge. Of course. Yeah.
6: yeah. Color of Truth through to uh, For the next few seasons as it's stuck in Wednesday nights That was the, the Nightingale slot But yeah it did start off in the Miami Vice slot Interesting
4: That's something else Wow I would never have thought that I mean that's heavy hitter Because you have a built-in audience tuning in to see Mommy Vice, and they're like, what's this? (laughs) 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 All right. Well, thank you for clearing that up, Matt. So uh, I didn't know that we'd get into the Nightingales lore. We're going to have to look that up. Maybe we'll do a leap elsewhere about Nightingales, or maybe I'll just go out (laughs) and play in traffic instead. I don't know. Hey, everyone. Before the break, I said that we would be bringing you an encore presentation of our interview with Claudia Christian. So here it is. are very
2: lucky today to have on the Quantum Leap podcast, Claudia Christian from the Quantum Leap episode played against Seymour. She played Allison. Thank you for joining us so much. Thank you for taking the time to talk about Quantum Leap with us.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
2: I guess my first question would be, could you share with us a little bit about your experience filming Quantum Leap?
0: Uh Well, it was an awfully long time ago, but I do remember a couple of things that really stood out in my memory, Which um, one of which was the costume designer, Jean-Pierre Dorliac, created some unbelievable outfits for me, including uh, one dress that I had to be sewn into. And I had never used a slant board before, but these were the um, apparatuses that women used to use in the films when they had very tight corsets or clothing that um, you just couldn't sit down in. So I, I had to actually lean up against one of those things because I couldn't sit in the dress that he made for me. He, he did finish. He actually sewed me into it. Um, his work was was just, uh, just stunning, and um, that made a big impact on me because I saw how much effort he put into it. And yeah, the, everybody on a crew works very hard, but that was just one particular thing that's that stood out for me. Um, Scott Bakula. I remember being very, very uh, generous of spirit and uh, uh, very, very, very kind to his fellow actors, including me, who was just a guest lead. You know and that impressed me as well because a lot of times that that's not the case with people who are basically carrying a show. But he was um, a, a lovely man, absolutely lovely. And it was it was it was just a, a neat concept. It was sort of based on. Um, I mean, there was a little bit of the Bogart. Uh, you know, this <laughs> thing in with the hats and the—I don't know—it was—it was—it was very nice. It was sort of period, you know, uh, from that uh, Ingrid Bergman, Bogart, Casablanca kind of feeling. So I was just going to say, so, a
2: whole Casablanca feel, yes.
0: Yeah, exactly. It did. It, it you know that that shot with the trench coats and the hats and the—it was neat. And and yet a lot of it, especially the stuff with Willie Garson, I ended up um, meeting a number of times throughout the years. When we had to, we had to really talk, sort of like nineteen thirties, you know. The drop in Clapper was one of the last some that that, that that I never forgot because it was so funny, Willie Garson coming out and saying that, you know, about um, somebody that we were chasing. So altogether, it was a really, it was a, a really fun show to work on.
2: Is the dress you were talking about the one that was very revealing?
0: The black sequin kind of uh dress they they call it, they they said they wanted to go for a Jessica rabbit look, the red hair and and uh, all that
2: <laughs> I think they succeeded you You were very beautiful in that episode.
0: Oh, thank you <laughs> You're
2: so sweet Oh, and uh, speaking of Willie Garson, yeah his his dialogue in this episode was almost you couldn't even understand what he was saying, there were so many metaphors.
0: Oh yeah, he, all of the you know his, those those expressions from the day. Great set of pins, great gams, you know. <laughs> it, it was a he was a cub reporter, you know. It was it was very cute, and I thought it was really really well done.
2: I'm glad to hear you say that about Scott Bakula. You hear that a lot from different co-stars in their interviews uh, that they star with uh, Scott Bakula. They say he's a great guy, and you hear it from everybody. So it's good to hear it from you.
0: Yeah, no, he's he's a really lovely man.
2: Because I just finished reading your book, uh, Babylon Confidential, and uh, you tell the truth about a lot of your co-stars. <laughs> I
0: do. <laughs> well, you know, if uh, there's a fine line, there is no fine line actually. There, you, if you're going to write a memoir and you're only in your forties, then you have to be. There has to be a reason to write it, and in addition to that, you have to be completely honest. And if you're trying to come clean about something, I think you have to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly. Otherwise i don't think people will buy it i mean they buy it not in the sense of purchasing it buy it in the sense of believing it and uh you know some of the tales that i told were told for entertainment and some were told simply to make a comment on this crazy business that i've been in for 30 years
2: i'm never going to look at corbin bernson the same again
0: <laughs> i don't think a lot of people will look at him the same way anymore
2: um, but uh, amazing book, amazing journey, Babylon Confidential. If uh, any of our listeners haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. Where in the book would uh, your filming of Quantum Leap fit into that book? Timeline-wise, oh. sorry.
0: Oh, time-wise. I think I, God, you know, I would have to look up the year of that episode. Um, 1989. Do you know the year offhand?
2: 1989.
0: Oh, 1989. Well, um, let's see. I got my first series in 83 when I was 18, so I was only... 24 uh so i was married when i did Quantum leap and um yeah that would have me working quite a bit in television right then i'd already done a couple of films but i was working a lot in tv Uh, and that was after i'd done a couple of series for nbc
2: black's magic
0: black's magic and behringers yeah
2: i watched a couple of black's magics last night because i had uh read in the book that you were in those and you played uh alexander black's daughter
0: (laughs) That's right, Hal Linden and Henry Morgan from MASH. From when I was a kid, I used to watch MASH, and he played my grandfather in that series, so it was neat. I guess Brandon Tartikoff, who was the president of NBC at the time, was a big Magic fan, and that's why they made that series.
2: When I was a kid, I was a big Magic fan, and I I watched it live, and it was nice to see you in it when I watched it again. Um, Thank you. Most listeners probably know you from Babylon 5, where you played Susan Ivanova.
0: Yeah, that's uh that, that's that's been probably had the most impact on my life that that job. Science fiction fans are the most loyal group of people I think I've ever encountered. Just wonderful. Um it's been almost 20 years since I started on that show and they now that it's showing from the very beginning again in the uk i've got you know a little group of young fans starting up again and due to dvds there's there's always a new generation discovering the show and it's uh it's really held up you know it's uh yeah the cgi looks uh dated but you know we were <laughs> we were the first sci-fi series to not use models to actually use cgi i think um But I think the storyline and the characters and the writing really holds up. And I think um, Joe Straczynski created something eternal and it touched a lot of people. I've met a lot of people through, you know, through the world thanks to Babylon 5. I've traveled the world and been able to meet people all over the place and it's uh it's always a continuing theme that this show touched many many lives and and i'm honored to have been part of it i i played a a jewish bisexual (laughs) russian telepathic commander (laughs) at a time when there weren't really any jewish characters in space and there wasn't really a lot of bisexual characters being portrayed in a positive light so i think i think it it was it was a really good it was a good thing for me uh I've I've actually made a lot of friendships through that show as well, uh, and they've lasted.
2: It was a really good role that you had, and you portrayed it well, and I was lucky enough to watch the whole series like back-to-back. I bought the complete series and watched it from beginning to end, and I just fell in love with the series and your character. You're right about the CGI, but um, once you get into the storyline and the characters, you don't even see the CGI.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. kind of drifts off to the background. When you... People like Andreas Katsula playing Jakar and then eating up the scenery you kind of forget about the rest of it.
2: <laughs> I loved reading all about Babylon Five in your book, but as I got in your book, I realized you were in so many more things that I had seen than i hadn't realized
0: yeah i I seem to have one of those one of those faces as well that it's funny because even today as in an office depot and somebody stopped me and said, I know you, you're famous. Uh, you're in Desperate Housewives. And I thought, no, I'm not in Desperate Housewives. But I said, no, but I've, I've been in a lot of stuff. You know, but it's always, it's always that. They they, they recognize me, but they can't really pinpoint what it is. So uh, it's, it is because I've done a, a lot of stuff, about 50 films and hundreds of hours of television and, um, in a in a broad range of characters. So I think it's, uh, it's, you know, it's easy to forget that I was in a lot of stuff.
2: Could you tell us uh, the reason why you wrote Babylon Confidential?
0: I wrote uh, Babylon Confidential mainly because I really wanted to help people. I wanted to share my experience uh, dealing with alcohol abuse, and I I found something that worked for me after trying just about every traditional treatment that was available out there. Nothing worked for me, and I continued to binge drink for about five years, and it really affected my happiness and my health and my life and I wanted to put an end to it. So when I found the Sinclair Method in 2009, I called the author of The Cure for Alcoholism, Dr. Roy Scappa, and I asked him what I could do for him because he is, thanks to his book based on Dr. David Sinclair's work, it essentially saved my life. And he said to me, well, you have a modicum of celebrity, so write a book. <laughs> so I did. Um, and that was really the impetus for writing the book. I, I knew that it was cheeky of me to... presumptuous of me to write a memoir of, what, 45 years old or however old I was when I started it. Um, But I also knew that what the message that I had could potentially save lives. And here we are in 2013, and it has saved hundreds and hundreds and thousands of lives. Um, I myself personally have over 100 people on the Sinclair method that I've put on it and uh, helped them through the process and the treatment, and I have 100% success rate. In addition to that, I started a nonprofit organization called the C3 Foundation, which is www.c3foundation.org, and that Um, is a place where people can get information for doctors and for their family and friends and loved ones. Anybody who's affected by alcoholism can go there for as much information as they need so that they can either start the Sinclair Method or approach their doctor or their therapist or psychiatrist. I want to eventually make naltrexone easier to get for people. I would like, in a perfect world, to have clinics, much, much like methadone clinics, available for alcoholics and their families to just get naltrexone and go on this treatment because it is the most successful long-term treatment for alcoholism in the world. It has an 80% success rate. And if you compare that to rehab or AA or moderation or any of these other methods, um, they have a 95% relapse rate and maybe a 5 to 10% success rate. So to me, this, this, this problem of alcoholism, which is costing America alone billions of dollars every year, it's also costing about 80,000 lives, not to mention the trickle-down effect of families being destroyed and lost days of work and accidents and medical bills. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just it's ridiculous. It's one of the most costly diseases in the world right now. And in America, it's in the top three. And there is an easy, simple, effective FDA-approved pill. You know, it's inexpensive and safe with very little side effects, Um. And nobody's ever died on the Sinclair method. Nobody's ever overdosed. Nobody's ever uh, gotten tremendously ill or anything. Uh, it's, it's incredibly safe. And, um, you know, I believe that this is the future of alcohol treatment. And I don't understand why it's not more utilized. I do understand it's because it's not financially uh, beneficial for anybody. Because the more you use the pill, the less you need the pill. So it's not a money-making thing. And it would put rehab out of business. So uh, And that's a multi-billion dollar business that doesn't work. So it's, it's, a, it's a big struggle right now to fight up against those businesses, but I intend to do so. In fact, I'm going to be on Larry King on November 14th talking about the Sinclair Method. And this currently I'm making a documentary about it, and I'm hoping that will reach more people. So that's really my goal right now. And once again, getting back to why I wrote the book, I wrote the book to help people. That's my joy now, is to help people with the same thing I went through.
2: It's an amazing book, and I think it will help a lot more people as time goes on as well. I've never heard of the Sinclair Method before the book, but it seems like everybody should know about it that's struggling with alcoholism.
0: I couldn't agree with you more, and I was shocked that when I went to rehab, nobody mentioned it to me. And I was shocked when I went to hypnotherapy and detox and all these places that nobody ever told me about the Sinclair Method until I realized that the reason why they don't talk about it is because they don't want to lose their jobs. I mean, you know, 30000 to $60,000 for a rehab, uh, three to $5,000 to medically detox, you don't need any of that with the Sinclair Method. You can. I tell everyone it's true. I, I got cured for less than 50 bucks. I bought a used copy of Dr. Escapa's book, The Cure for Alcoholism, on Amazon. And I bought uh, 30 pills online. (laughs) And and, And next thing you know, I had no interest in alcohol. My cravings were gone. My compulsiveness about it was gone. And now, four years later, I maybe drink four times a year, six times a year, you know, holidays or my birthday, I'll have a couple of drinks and that's it. I just take a pill and have a couple of drinks. Most of the time I'm sober and 40 something percent of the people on the Sinclair Method go completely abstinent. It's, um, it's really, it's miraculous. And, uh, you know, when you get a phone call or email or take a Skype session with somebody and they say, wow, I've never known my mother. I got this from a 16 year old girl. She called me and said, I've never known my mother my entire life because she was drinking. And now that she started the Sinclair Method a few months ago, it's the first time this kid's ever known her mom sober and ever really gotten to talk to her mom and to know who her mother was. And when I hear things like that, it just breaks my heart. And I think of all the children out there who are dealing with alcoholic parents and all the spouses who are dealing with an alcoholic spouse and all the parents of children of alcoholics, how desperately frustrated they feel and how helpless they feel. And here is this simple solution. You take a pill, an hour later you have a drink within a few months, it causes pharmacological extinction and you no longer are an alcoholic. I mean, I believe that people think it's too good to be true. And, and, you know, and I think a lot of people just don't understand the science behind it. I was lucky enough to be raised with a family of doctors and scientists. So the neurology, the neurological aspect of it is fascinating to me. And it makes sense. Extinction makes sense. It's been around forever. I mean, Pavlov, you know, look at that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it just makes sense.
2: It makes a lot of sense, and uh, I have a few friends that I think would benefit from this book. Would it be appropriate to give them copies of this book?
0: Absolutely, and... um What's even take it a step further? They can anybody, and I mean anybody, can reach me directly. I've made this. You know, I answer fifty to a hundred emails a day. They can reach me at Claudia at BabylonConfidential dot com. That comes directly to me, and I can help send them literature about the Sinclair Method. They can also go to that website, which is the C three foundationorg dot org. And three is spelled out by the way. they can go there and also get information um giving them a copy of Babylon Confidential helps or a copy of Roy Scopa's The Cure for Alcoholism that helps you know for people who can't afford it. I also have p d f s available uh you know, and that's all I want to do now is help people, so certainly, if you have friends, send them to me um I can. I can also help them. If they can't get a prescription from their doctor, I can send them to the proper places online to purchase naltrexone, which a lot of people have to do because doctors are, are ambivalent at best and hesitant sometimes about prescribing it because either A, they're not educated about it, or B, they're not willing to do liver, liver tests. Uh, C, They're they just don't want to I don't know. It's weird. I mean, it's such an innocuous, declassified prescription. In some countries, sell it over the counter. So, and you could more easily overdose on aspirin. Seriously, it just it boggles my mind when doctors refuse to prescribe it because, quite frankly, it's a it's a drug that can save your life. So, and you know, they'll give you oxycontin or Valium but they won't give you a, an opiate blocker. I mean, it's, it's it just it's just staggering to me. I mean, there's things that you can buy over the counter that are far more dangerous than naltrexin or nalmaphine.
2: Well, like you said, there's no money in it, and there's no money mm-hmm. in uh, curing something, only treating it.
0: Well, that's just it, is it. Like I said, the more you take the pill, the less you need the pill. So, so you know, once you reach a point in your extinction where you're abstinent, you no longer need to take naltrexin or nalmaphine. So you stop taking it, So now the pharmaceutical company and, you know, going to stop making money off that particular client. But I, I spoke to a company today, and it was very refreshing. When I told him the reality of the situation, I said, you know, if we, yes, it, potentially you'll have a client for life because some people will continue to drink within safe levels, and they will be the ones that will continue to take on for the rest of their life. And he said, well, we're actually a pharmaceutical company that cares about people getting better, so that doesn't matter to us. So that, that was the first time I've ever heard that um, because when I called a rehab place, uh, last year. And I said, why don't you use the Sinclair method? I wish I would have recorded this call because they said, well, why would we do that? It would put us out of business.
2: <laughs> I,
0: <laughs> Boy, do I wish I had that on tape. <laughs> they, were being,
2: they were being honest. Yeah. Uh, it really does seem like a miracle drug, a miracle method that goes along with the drug. And, uh, I'm so glad that you found out about this because your story might've ended a totally different way without it.
0: Absolutely. You know, I I, I definitely uh, because I was a, a person that wasn't a consistent drinker. I was a binger. Then when I did, well, I would have nine months of sobriety, and when I would fall off the wagon, it was getting progressively worse every time I would fall off. So yeah, I could have been one of those people who had a grand mal seizure after trying to detox or something. Um, I know people who suffered horrible strokes. Um, you know, I, it's just a uh, it's a very frightening thing, and especially if you. You know, if you don't understand addiction and you've never experienced addiction, it's a very frightening thing when it happens to you because you're just not in control of yourself. And I'm a, a very strong, disciplined person, and for me to be out of control was scary. It was really scary. And the nice thing about the Sinclair Method is it changes your brain back to the pre-alcoholic state, so you're no longer thinking about alcohol, which a lot of times when I was sober, just from pure white-knuckling it, I was obsessed with alcohol because I couldn't drink, so I was obsessed with the fact that I had to be sober and with the Sinclair method that goes away because it, it literally extinguishes the thought of alcohol or the compulsion all of that is gone so it's it really is a, a, it's a I hate this expression, but I'm going to use it so you're not a you're not a dry drunk, which a lot of people even Bill W died begging for whiskey you know um they they are always always standing up and saying, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, and they're always thinking about alcohol, and they're always talking about alcohol, and that just isn't a part of my life anymore, and that's, it's freedom. It's freedom from the chains of addiction and the chains of the thoughts of addictive behavior, so that's that's the beautiful part. I, I wanted to be back to the person who I was before the addiction crept in, and that's exactly where I am today, and that's what makes this such a beautiful treatment. It doesn't just make you stop drinking. It makes you stop thinking about alcohol as
2: well. It makes for a great ending to the book as well, because the whole time I was really worried for you, even though I knew you had written it so you were okay, but I just wanted a good ending. Even for people that aren't suffering from addiction, your life was amazing. I mean, going to New York as a teenager and going on a date with Billy Idol. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah it's it's funny I you know when it's your life you don't think of it in those terms but I I had a girlfriend I was in London with a friend of mine and she turned to me and she said do you realize that you've had the most exotic life of any of my friends and I thought exotic life and here my you know sometimes I think my life is so pedestrian because I'm I'm such a loner and I spend so much time reading and just being alone that I don't I don't think of it as glamorous but I do suppose that if you look at it on on the whole especially my 20s and 30s it was it was a good fun ride I mean I definitely had some experiences that a lot of people don't have and and I had a lot of uh, a lot of good fortune in my career um, by working steadily for 30 years and being able to live a decent life doing what I love. So I have been very, very blessed, and I, 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 I understand that, and that's why I'm I'm fully willing and desire to give back right now, and that's what I'm doing in everything that I do now, making the documentary, spending time with talking to alcoholics and their families all day, every day. Um, that's, that's really my way of, of giving back because I've been very, very blessed. My life has been good, despite that hiccup of having an alcohol addiction. I've had a very good life, and I have a a great family and friends around me, so I've got a good support system, and a lot of people don't. A lot of people have nobody to turn to, so I hope that, you know, they can turn to me.
2: On a personal note, just getting finished reading your book, how has your life been since you wrote the book?
0: My life has actually gotten even better because I, I have something that makes me happier even than acting and acting is is very joyful for me but just this by writing the book and and coming into this world of of dealing with people and helping people I, I realized that this is actually more of my calling than anything else I had to go through hell in order to find my life's work and that's why when people say you know wow it's really you went through some horrible times my response is yes but I would do it over again and it was not easy believe me um being an alcoholic was the most difficult thing I've ever experienced in my life. It was a heinous, heinous disease or learned behavior or whatever you want to call it. it the experience of, of going through that was awful. I, I hurt people and I hurt myself and, I, and it, it was just awful. But like I said, I would do it again. To be where I am right now because it's made me stronger. It's it's solidified the relationships that were important in my life. I know exactly what I want and what I will and will not put up with. And I love helping people. So I'm in a really really healthy relationship right now. I have a wonderful man in my life. I'm doing what I love to do, and I have great relationships with my family and friends because it's not clouded with addiction or uh, the histrionic behavior that goes along with being an addict. So my life is. The best it's ever been right now. It really is.
2: That makes me happy. Thank you. <laughs> um, very sweet of you. Thank you for all the entertainment you've given us over the years, and uh, can't wait to see more of it in the future. Uh, another quantum leap question, maybe just to end this conversation a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Scott Bacula, is he a good kisser?
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny. um I. I, there's only one person I really remember kissing in my entire 30-year career, and I remember it because it was so mind-blowingly good, and and uh, people always laugh when I say who it was, but, because of his big mustache, but it was Sam Elliott,
6: uh-huh. and
0: that's the only person I, I really remember kissing, uh, I don't remember kissing Scott, I was probably nervous, and I was married at the time, so I was probably really super self-conscious, and I'm sure he was married, and, you know, those things are usually awkward at best, Um but uh, I did see him jogging um, around Lake Hollywood a couple years ago, and it is, he's a very handsome man, <laughs> and he still is.
2: <laughs> I would agree. I have a little man crush on him myself.
0: <laughs> I don't blame you. Scott Bakula is not only nice, but he's, uh, he's a stud. He's, uh, got a, he, he was shirtless, I have to say. I was impressed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, but he's lovely. But I do not remember that kiss. I should lie and probably say it was wonderful, but I I don't remember it.
2: People can get the book at BabylonConfidential.com, dot com, right?
0: They can get uh, they can get a signed copy, and uh, that money goes towards uh, finishing up my documentary at BabylonConfidential.com, dot com. Or they can um, they can buy it online, uh, yeah, Amazon or any of those other um, online book stores. They can purchase it there.
2: Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking with you.
0: Thank you very much, and have your friends contact me.
2: <laughs> okay, will do. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Christian.
0: Thank you. You have a wonderful night.
2: You too. Bye.
0: Okay, bye.
4: Okay. Now that I listen back, I do remember listening to that one, but, um, isn't Baby Albie adorable?
5: Little Baby Albie. Oh, <laughs> how excited he was. He always just great in interviews.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Thank you, Claudia, very much. The very first guest that we've had on the Quantum Leap podcast. It's come back in the rotation. So lucky you. Everybody gets to hear it again. <laughs> very interesting woman. So nice. Great talk. I think if if I recall correctly, I think Albie has mentioned to me offline that um he still has some casual contact with her occasionally. Oh so, well, that's cool. Yeah. I could be wrong about that. And uh she yeah, seems
5: like a cool lady.
4: Write a letter to correct me if I'm wrong, Albie. But uh yeah, she she was really, really nice. So thank you, Claudia. Again, I know it's what, ten years later, but
5: uh you know, it's <laughs> nice to have you back on the show. Yeah. Now, she could do an interview about her interview on the QLP, like, oh, it's been 10 years now, so I don't know if I remember. An interview
4: in retrospect. So tell me, what was it like talking to Albie?
5: <laughs> but that was, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, before we had, like, Zoom and all these other things as readily available, she just gave him her number. Yeah. That's a lot of trust, you know? Yeah, it sure is. Pretty cool. Pretty cool Albie wasn't a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to her. <laughs> not to her, anyway. <laughs>
4: So good job, everyone. And uh, you know who else is doing a good job? Our new patron, Stuart Williams. That's who's doing a good
6: job. Yay. Yay. Thank you, Stuart. (laughs) Thank you, Stuart.
4: Stuart has joined us at the $5 Leaper level, which means that he has access now to all of the bonus content that's available over on the Patreon site. And he will also be getting a Quantum Leap Book Club bookmark, which is coming just in time because I think we have Pulitzer coming up on our next show. So we'll be going back to the books and the comic books and everything too over the next several weeks. So thank you, Stuart, so much for joining us at that $5 Leaper level. Uh, another one from across the pond. I, I say $5, but it's five pounds.
6: Five pounds?
4: Yes. Yeah, Matt, Matt made sure to type the pound
6: sign and not the dollar sign. So. It's very easy on my keyboard to type the pound sign. It's, it's right there. <laughs> It never even occurred to me. <laughs> to be fair, it's not because I use an American keyboard here, but I touch type, so I know exactly where the pound sign should be.
4: Gotcha. So, see? Pound signs, nightingales. This is one hell of an episode. Who knew we'd be talking about any of this stuff? So. But, yeah, thank you, Stuart, so much. And for those of you who have been waiting for some new Patreon content to drop, you are probably um, happy uh, now that you've seen that my oh boy interview with Craig Riedler has gone live, finally. And um, we also have another Leaps Elsewhere to come uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, so take a listen for that as well. And wow, now that Allison's back, we have to gear up, do a little bit more of the bonus content. I can't wait to talk about the next stuff starring Scott or starring Dean or whatever it is we do. We haven't done a Fanchion forever. It's crazy so mm. yeah looking forward cool. to that. get
5: back into those
4: yeah yeah for sure so plenty of great stuff to come while uh the new series is on hiatus it's like we never left but um yeah. this is usually the part where i do feedback but i've been so busy that i don't even know if we have any feedback so hey i don't think
6: we do oh okay <laughs> so i've not seen any in our inbox recently
4: there might be some kicking around somewhere there might be a phone call out there but uh this is an open invitation for all of you out there listening tell us what you think about play it against Seymour tell us what you think about the revival series tell us what you think about getting back into the classic series tell us anything you want you can drop us a line at p o box five forty two bayport new york 11705 you can get us on the phone at 707-847-6682 you can email us at quantum at gmail.com you can follow us on facebook at facebook.com slash quantum podcast and instagram at quantum podcast you can also find us on twitter at quantum leap pod and you can always go over to the youtube channel and see us there at youtube.com slash the quantum leap podcast and support us on patreon just like Stuart williams at patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast just remember we may use your response in an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast and uh upcoming episodes matt what's going on with youtube now that the (laughs) series is on hiatus for the season i know that we've gotten so many interviews from the guest stores but you're still busy with other interviews right that are going to be on youtube like what's what's going on there
6: yeah, I I think um I I just got so excited booking in all those interviews over the last few months. I couldn't stop. Uh so I'm now spending the next few months trying to track down people that were involved in the novels and the comics. Uh I had a wonderful chat with Julie Barrett uh, a few weeks back who wrote the Quantum Leap to Z. Nice. Yeah, she was she was super lovely.
4: Yeah, I've met Julie. She's great. She's great. Yeah.
6: And obviously, yeah, she, she was, um, she had a lot of cool memories of fandom in the nineties and, and yeah, talked, talked a lot about geeky research, which touched my heart. Um, <laughs> the YouTube channel this week should have, uh, once I've edited it, a short interview with Bill Spangler, who is a, a comic book writer. He, he did a bunch of stuff in the eighties and nineties. Um, not just quantum leap, but he did write one issue of the quantum leap comic book. And I had a, a nice chat with him
5: nice so uh, which issue did he write
6: uh getaway the the one that was out around about the same time as Kill in time and had almost the same plot line oh that was uh, an interesting one which he had to, he had quite a sense of humor about that's great <laughs> i've not read any
4: of the comic shit yeah, that's I've really been, cool yeah i've been waiting to save them for the show so and i just found the entire run at a comic book shop a few weeks ago so now that's i have awesome i got them all baby so very happy
6: and a couple of days back, I also had a chat with Christina Mavrudis, uh, who was big in fandom in the, the 80s and 90s, uh, just about her memories. It was going to be a quick chat, mainly about one of the comics that she was going to write before Innovation shut down. And we ended up chatting for an hour. Uh, I, it might take a little while to pull everything together because there's just so much stuff there. But for those of us like, like me that just wasn't wasn't heavily into fandom back then, it, it was it was fascinating. Loads of cool stuff came up. So that might be a couple more weeks before that drops, but that'll definitely be on the YouTube channel soon enough.
5: Cool. Well, that's fantastic. You've been a busy bee, huh? Yeah.
6: There's, oh there's, there's a few more <laughs> booked in as well, but I don't want to say names just in case they don't come off and uh, just end up having to explain why not. Uh, but, I mean, it's again, it's people to do with the novels and the comics. Um, wow. But loads of people are interested in talking.
5: That's really, really cool.
6: Yeah, that's great.
4: I'm glad to hear it. And, um, another thing that's going on over at the YouTube channel, Albie has clued me and, uh, what his plans are for the after show. Again, since they're on hiatus. Um, he now intends to pick up right where he left off, right where we took over. Um, he's going to be doing after shows starting with Runaway and mm. just. What? Yeah. So, um, that's, that was our first episode. I'll be back at the, it. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's going to be the usual dynamic over there with Albie and Hayden as the main hosts with revolving guest hosts as the weeks go on. So I don't know that he's going to have as vigorous a production schedule as he did because, you know, we, we, we can only do so much and we were killing ourselves. But, uh, <laughs> knowing Albie, uh, he'll be getting him out fairly regularly and he seems to be really psyched about it. So yeah, he was texting me all about it and, um, I think it's going to be great because it'd be like a new episode of the podcast for me to listen to. Um, right where I left (laughs) off, you know, (laughs) I was listening (laughs) to Albie and Heather. So yeah, weird, weird how that works out. Uh, I want to know what Albie thinks about Runaway because I've already, I've already spoken about it on the Quantum Leap podcast. I need to hear the creators, the creators version of it. Yeah. So, so yeah, all that good stuff is going on at youtube.com slash the Quantum Leap podcast. And I had already alluded to it earlier, but, uh, next show, we're finally back to the books too. So Mm. not just classic series, but novels. Speaking of novelists, uh, Matt, uh, we are going to be discussing Pulitzer by Liz Storm, L. Elizabeth Storm, I believe, is uh, her her nom de plume, right?
6: What does the L stand for?
4: I don't know. You know, if I could ever find Liz's contact information again, I would call her and ask her and thank her. And yeah, I'll I'll talk about when I first met Liz on that show. But um, cool. Let's put it this way: I hold her in very high regard. And, um, yeah, oh. she, uh, she's, she's a super person. And, um, I can't wait to dive into, to Pulitzer. I haven't read it since it came out. So I'd be very interested to see, it, you know, what I think of it now as opposed to the person I was back then. Cause I was mm. just a stupid kid back then. Now I'm an old man. <laughs> so it might resonate differently. I don't know, but we'll see. So yeah, uh, coming up next, Pulitzer by Liz Storm. And, uh, it's, it's kind of a long one, folks. So if you haven't read it or if you don't have it, I would um, get it and read it as quickly as you can and give yourself some time because I think it's among the longest of the Quantum Leap novels.
5: Yes. Yeah, it's not the longest, longest. but it's one, yeah. uh, It's regarded as one of the best ones. So if you guys haven't been reading the novels, this might be one to pick up. Yeah. Yeah. A very,
4: very Al-heavy novel, by the way. So for all of you alcoholics out there, uh, you'd be doing yourself (laughs) a disservice if you don't read Pulitzer. So yeah, I am excited Uh, and- uh, as soon as you get Liz Storm, Matt, you let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. Liz, if, you're out, if you're out there listening, we've been trying to reach you. We can't find any contact information. And, uh, you know, we, we don't want to be crazy stalkers or anything, but I'm sure the fans would love to hear about your experience writing Pulitzer and Angels Unaware. Um, one of the few novelists in, in the Quantum Leap range that was able to do two books. So, um, it's, it, it would be wonderful, Liz, if you're listening. This is a direct appeal from me to you. Please give us a shout here. Uh, I gave you the contact information earlier. I don't know that you listen. I pretend that you do listen and that you love us because um, <laughs> it makes me feel good. But uh, yeah, um, we'd love to talk to you about Pulitzer and maybe have you on the episode when we review the book. So, okay, naked plea over. Um, <laughs> I can't <laughs> tell you, Allison, how great it's been to uh, be doing the show with you again. Welcome back. I've missed you so much, and uh, I'm sure that the listeners have as well.
5: Thanks, I miss talking to you guys.
6: Me too. It's so good to have the gang back.
5: Do we normally read the back of the books on the when we're talking oh, about shit, coming up next? You know
6: what? I have, it's
4: been so long since we've done it. We yeah, do. I'm
5: pretty sure we do. Yeah, so, I've got it
4: ready. So do it, Matt. Hey, Matt. Oh. Why don't we, I'm going to leave that in too. See, that's how long it's been since the, you know, you know it's, it's, it's not all sunshine and rainbows here, yeah. but thank you, Allison. That's why we need Allison back.
6: Hey, Matt, what's it say on the back of Pulitzer? <laughs> oh, what it says is this, a leap for an unknown soldier. Maryland, 1975. Sam has leaped into a psychiatrist at Bethesda Naval Hospital. A newly released POW just off the plane from Vietnam, a Lieutenant John Doe, has been admitted for psychiatric evaluation. But when Sam walks into Doe's room for the first time, he realizes this soldier has a name to go with his face Lieutenant Al Calavici. Now Sam must think fast because some unhappy Pentagon officials have questions for Al. Questions about his imprisonment, his captors, and his reported treason against the United States of America. Quantum Leap Pulitzer, are an all new adventure first time in print.
4: Oh boy. Such a lighthearted rump, huh? Yes. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, it's a meaty, meaty book. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on
4: yeah i'm looking forward to reading that and i'm looking forward to discussing that with you but until that time i have been christopher d philippus i've been allison pregler and i've been matt dale and we'll see you next time
1: thank you for joining us for this episode of the quantum leap podcast hosted by allison matt and chris with voice talent and contributions from hayden McQueenie and zoe dean to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Greg Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual, and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren Space production.
6: Smoking's cool, kids.